This is episode 39 of Extraordinary Women Radio. Welcome to Extraordinary Women Radio. I am your host, Cami Gildner. Women are being called to live with voice, vitality, and vigor. Each month, join me for wisdom-filled interviews with extraordinary women living out loud and making a difference in our world. Their stories will uplift, inspire, and spark your own purpose-driven journey. Hello, my extraordinary women friends. Today, I am so excited to bring you an astronaut here on Extraordinary Women Radio. I'm a bit giddy over this one because I must say I've never met an astronaut. And I'm really curious to learn about her experiences, the passion, the callings, the bravery that it took to say yes to being an astronaut. Susan J. Helms has logged 211 days in space, and I know she's going to have an, have just incredible, extraordinary stories to share with us today. Susan is another one of our 2018 inductees to the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. This series has just been so amazing, and if you haven't heard the other episodes where I've featured this year's inductees and their wonderful stories and wisdom, I encourage you to take some time to tune into the episode with Dorothy Harrell, who is an education professional and chancellor at the University of Colorado at Denver, or Faye Matsukage, an activist in the legal field for women and Asians, and Jerry Grimes, who's an early childhood education activist, nonprofit leader, and also encourage you to watch for the upcoming episodes with Gail Schottler, who is a banking, government, and women's activist, and Leslie Foster, who is a nonprofit leader and activist. Talk about a class of change makers. I'm so honored to get to, to host these interviews here. And all six of these women are going to be inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame on March 28th at the induction gala in Denver. Tickets are on sale at cogreatwomen.org. So C-O-G-R-E-A-T women, W-O-M-E-N.org. I've been to this event in the past and it truly is extraordinary. It's about writing women's stories into history. And as you can hear on all these episodes, they truly are stories that need to be told. So I hope to see you there. It's going to be a fantastic evening. Again, it's on March 28th, the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame Induction Gala. And it will be that evening. And you can get tickets at cogreatwomen.org. Let's dig in and learn a little bit more about Susan. Susan was the first U.S. military woman in, woman in space and is a retired Air Force Lieutenant General, an astronaut who has a crew member who who was a crew member on four space shuttle missions. She holds the world's record for the longest spacewalk, which was eight hours and fifty six minutes, and was the first woman to serve on the International Space Station. She is a member of the first class, or she was a member of the first class at the Air Force Academy to include women. So she's definitely a trailblazer. She was on over 30 American and Canadian aircraft as a flight engineer and a weapons separation engineer on planes that included F-15 and F-16 fighters. And she retired in 2014 as a three-star general after serving as the first female commander of the Vandenberg Air Force Base. Wow, I am so excited. Let's meet Susan J. Helms. Well, welcome, Susan. It's so great to have you here on Extraordinary Women Radio. 
Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And I can't wait to hear some of your stories as a woman of space. I'm so incredibly honored to get to interview you today. And before we dig in, I just, I also have to say congratulations on being inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. What an honor that is. Oh, thank you very much. I agree. It's a complete honor. That was a wonderful surprise. Uh, well, congratulations. And you certainly fit within the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. And it's, you have such an incredible story. Uh, you started, I mean, you've, you've logged 211 days in space. I mean, that's just incredible. What is a day in space like? Well, you know, that's a, that answering that question would probably take a week, but I'll, <laughs> I'll put it, I'll put it this way. Um, first of all, at, at the long view level, uh, every day you're demonstrating that humanity can exist and work and thrive in the space environment. Uh, that's the long view. And then the short view is every day in space is all about doing something related to your space mission, which might range from deploying a satellite to doing science to outfitting the International Space Station to, to make it larger and greater and more capable. Uh, but in the bigger picture, it's really about demonstrating that human beings can exist off of planet Earth. Yeah, oh, nice, nice. And so, and that's the humanity part of it that you're talking about is, is that people can exist and be out there and, and, and live off, off of our earth. That's right. It, it's showing how adaptable humans are. Humans mm. were created on planet earth, but it shows how they can adapt to actually living off planet earth as well. What was the, the biggest um, adaptation that you had to make living off of earth? Well, surprisingly, uh, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> I, I think that probably the physical changes that happen to human beings when they live in space are pretty well documented. You know, basically the human body recognizes that it's not experiencing the force of gravity anymore. And so the body begins to make adaptations to, to become more efficient for, for an environment that doesn't have the effects of gravity. For example, oh, the muscles, yeah, the muscles um, begin to optimize for the fact you don't need to lift things that weigh any kind of weight anymore. And there's well-documented evidence about bone mass loss, which don't think of that as a negative. Think of that as the human body basically changing itself to be more efficient to have less bone mass. Right. Um, when it's it's kind of a miracle, right? It is a miracle. The body doesn't really need so much bone mass when it's living without the effort of lifting things that weigh poundage and um, doing work under a gravity environment. The body just basically begins to make changes because it, it recognizes it can be efficient at a different point. And, uh, and that was that was pretty incredible to see both in the short term on the space shuttle flights and then on the long term as well, uh, living in space for a number of months. Um, and there was also an interesting psychological dimension, not so much with the space shuttle flights, which only last about one to three weeks, uh, but with the space station missions, when you are living on a space outpost that's a different place than Earth. Um, the psychological part of that was also um, something you could get prepared for, but 
but I would say that the transition for me to go to that kind of environment was pretty easy. I thought it was much more difficult to come home after living in space without being around people uh, for a number of months. I did see people. Obviously, I saw the other members of my crew. Uh, There were three of us on board at at the time that I was up there. And we also had the occasional uh, visitors while we were up there because the space shuttle would come up and stay for about a week and bring extra hardware. And along with that came the people that flew on the space shuttle, but but not the hordes of people that you're around here on planet Earth. And, right. Um, and making the transition to be around so many people again was difficult. That was the big surprise. Not to go to space, but to come back from space and, yeah. and psychologically adapt to that. Yeah. The um, What did you learn about yourself as you experienced that, um, you know, that, that fewer people being in space and then that transition back? What did you learn about yourself and just and and, and your own desires of of you know? Do you like the quiet space? Did you um, did you like the busyness of people? I mean, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, when when we got up there, uh, and this was two thousand and one, we launched on March eighth of two thousand one, and we were on the space station just the three of us by March, March um, 11th. Oh, I guess we, the space shuttle stayed. So the three of us were left behind uh, about a week or so later. Okay. And, um, and so from that point on, we had about five months of, for the most part, peace and quiet. And I, a lot of people have asked me if living on the space station was stressful. And I would tell people, and I still do to this day, Actually, it was some of the most stress-free living of my entire life. And because I thought you're, about you're, why you're, that was, Yeah, go ahead. I, I thought about why that might be, and I realized that on the space station, at least in the era that we were there, you know, we didn't have television, we didn't have internet, we didn't have phone mail. We, we had email, but it was very constrained. We would only get maybe three to five emails a day, if you can believe that. What a concept, and, right? <laughs> And, and and what really we didn't have was the noise of life. Right. We didn't have we didn't have anything that related to the kind of noise of life we have today. I, I mean, I remember great relief at being able to get away from phones and emails. And because that point in two thousand one, the social media and the the people's use of of technology was really starting to ramp up. And so on Space Station, we were cut off from all that. And after five or six months, uh, when we came back from Space Station, we were immediately thrust back into not only being around so many people again, but also that noise of life. Exactly. And I found that to be incredibly stressful. So to this day, I I just don't turn the television on when I'm in my house alone. So... It it just uh, it just made me realize that human beings aren't really meant to be dealing and multitasking with this level of noise, and um, and of course it's just expanded since two thousand one. You know, and I'm so glad you shared this because I think I I'm often talking about there's always so much noise and pe- people and technology and happenings going around us all the time, and so having all of that that quiet space, which, you know, we might call mindful today, right? That mindfulness space where we can just be with ourselves. Um, 
was there something that you really learned about yourself with just all of that expansive space to, to be with yourself? Well, among the three of us, I, I think the thing I definitely learned was that it didn't seem natural for human beings to be around that kind of noise. And it mm-hmm. still doesn't seem natural to me today that human beings live that way. Um, so I did learn about myself in that way that um, the level of stress day to day that I think all of us experience is in, in some part, there's contributions to that stress by all this daily noise of life that right. we would now call social media. And I, for one, learned that um, it's a negative stress. Right. Because when I lived on station without it, you know, it took about three weeks to adapt to being without television and the like. But when I got adapted to that, it was just amazing how relaxing it was, even though we were in what a lot of people would think of as a very stressful environment, which is the risk right. of space flight. Right, right, exactly. I think that's really fascinating. And today, do you make space to turn off all that noise that's here on a, on a regular basis? Uh, I, I do as much of that as I can. Of course, um, with a lot of what's going on today in my life, you know, there's a necessity to remain connected. But my Facebook account's pretty weak, and I really do not turn the television on for noise like I used to before I flew on that mission. It's just, um, I just, I just find it aggravating when I do. So in large part, it just stays off. Nice. Nice. So what was your most memorable story from space? Um, perhaps something where you learned about, you know, a really important life lesson or you learned about yourself as a woman, you know, what's the story that just stands out for you that you love to tell? Well, there's a lot of stories and I, I thought about which one to tell for this, for this event. And I think what I'll do is um, talk about a surprising discovery about myself, uh-huh. which is uh, when I was on orbit, you know, it was, it was a, a very much a, an amazing opportunity. It was after four years of training for this space station flight, uh, living on, on the space station, getting a chance to support humankind by further demonstrating that humans can do this, um, having tasks and mission every day with my crewmates to help outfit the technology and the capacity of the space station. And then, of course, looking at the Earth from the window of right. the space station. I mean, it was really that in so many days, it was just the sense of how, how lucky am I to get a chance to do this on behalf of so many people on planet earth who, by the way, are eminently responsible for making it all happen. Uh, You know, it's not just the astronauts who make it all happen. It's the thousands of people who work at not only NASA, but in other elements of um, international industry that bring it all together so that the astronauts get these opportunities. And then one day when I was looking back at planet earth, I remember thinking, you know, this is just such an amazing life experience, but if it weren't for my family and friends, it wouldn't mean nearly so much. Uh, so I had reached the point where, um, in spite of the fact that I had had this fantastic opportunity and we were doing amazing things and we were executing the objectives of thousands of people on planet Earth for this, this, this grand adventure we call human spaceflight, at its very core, if you don't have family and friends to share it with, 
it loses its meaning. So mm. uh, when I walked away from that um, that office at the NASA office and I went on to do other things, I remember carrying with me a sense that family and friends are truly extremely important and they have to have a, a, an upfront role in anything that's meaningful in life. Mm, I love that. And it's, it's, that's such a good point for our listeners to really tune into. It's like, you know, whatever your journey is, whatever your grand adventure is, having that family and friends to share it with really is what makes it meaningful. That's correct. Oh, that's lovely. I like that. Um, you, and you, you just mentioned this, this opportunity of being able to see the earth from above, right? Being able to look down and see this small ball and, 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 you know, just what an amazing experience that had to be. It's funny because yesterday I, I've been reading this book called the book of joy and it's my newest favorite book. And it's, um, it's an interview with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And I was reading and I was sitting and I was reading through this book and it pops up on the page, as I've been, you know, thinking and preparing for this interview is it talk, it, they talked about, um, the overview effect and the overview effect. I didn't even, I'd never even heard of this, but it refers to this cognitive shift in awareness reported by astronauts as they have this opportunity to view the earth from space. And I was like, well, who knew there, first of all, there was a term for this. And, you know, I love the synchronicity of yesterday as I was preparing for your interview, I opened up a totally unrelated book and, you know, it pops up some information about this. And um, so did you experience this overview effect where you, um, you know, you just really felt a cognitive shift um, and, you know, maybe from a humanity perspective, even what did you learn about humanity as you're looking down from looking from space down to the earth um, what did you learn? Uh, well, that's a great question. And, and the short answer is, uh, yes, I did have a cognitive shift. And I'll give you a couple of points, a couple of times when I experienced what you're talking about. Um, the first one, which is eminently obvious to anyone who gets a chance to do this, is, is when you're looking back at the earth, and in particular, the land masses, the first thing you notice is that it doesn't have any borders. <laughs> um, so, so there's there's this whole concept of sovereignty and who owns what pieces of land and you know who's got their grip on what territory of planet Earth. But when you look back at planet Earth from space, you don't see any of that. Right. You don't see that that there are different countries. You don't see that there are different people. You just see that the effect of humankind on planet earth. You see things like airports and ship wakes and contrails of airplanes. You can see those things actually from the distances that we're flying above. Amazing. Um, So you see, you see the effect of humankind, um, but you don't see who owns it. Right. You don't see who owns what, which I think is um, important. It's important to realize that when you step away from things, um, all these squabbles about territory and, and all that. I mean, it's important that humanity builds societies uh, to support the people of humanity, but, but, you know, drawing the lines and the borders and the boundaries and all that, that part doesn't seem to be nearly as um, recognizable. And that's too, I think, probably uh, an interesting effect. It, It changes your perspective on humankind and how really we're all 
one family as opposed to a number of different countries. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's such an important message in today, right? I mean, it's such an important message that we could all just stop and think about it from that perspective in all the craziness that goes on on our earth today. Uh, And then the other thing that was really kind of a shocker, uh, you know, we fly around the earth in the space shuttle or the space station about every 90 minutes. And so you get a chance to have maybe 45 to 50 minutes of earth that's lit up so that you can see those contrails and those ship wakes and, and uh, the airports and such. And then you have about 35 to 40 to 45 minutes of darkness of the earth. Mm-hmm. As you're going around the earth every 90 minutes, you see both the light and the dark side while you're doing so. And, um, looking down at some of the parts of the world in the daytime uh, that is considerably considerably less industrialized than, let's say, the United States or Canada, it's hard to see the impact of humanity on those parts of, of the countries because um, they don't have the highway structures that we have. They don't have the airports that we have. But at night, when you look down at some of the parts of the world that you thought were relatively uninhabited, and you can see the lights of cities, uh, villages, tiny little places, as as well as some of the um, roads that go from place to place. I mean that that was a stunner to me, and it the the density of the light of cities and towns and villages that you couldn't see in the daytime, but you could see at night, really hit home how many people we have on this planet. And by comparison, how sparsely the the United States is populated compared to other parts of the world. Oh, interesting. I mean, I remember remember looking down at India, China, and Japan at night and realizing how many people exist in those parts of the world, which I never really had absorbed in any of my studies. And Mm -hmm. to look down and see basically what seemed like one giant city light in the shape of Japan was um, was a stunner as well as the density of the coastline of China and the breadth of population throughout India was those were major revelations to me. That's really interesting because I mean I often think of the United States as being a very heavily you know dense populated place but you know in, in what you're describing here it's 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 a different viewpoint that you see there. Yeah, it's in in our coastlines. Obviously, that's where a lot of us uh, in the United States sit. But uh, we got nothing on India, China, and other parts of the world um, compared compared to their population numbers. And you really don't get the concept of that until you look down from space and see the the night light of the cities and towns and villages. Um, only then did it sink in what that really meant. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Interesting. So you hold the record for the longest spacewalk, eight hours and 56 minutes. Can you share what that experience was like? You know, it. I have an analogy for that. And I've told this analogy many times. Um, imagine going to someplace like the Grand Canyon and looking at the Grand Canyon uh, from the edge of the canyon, if you will, from the inside of your car, inside of your vehicle, and then step outside your vehicle and take another look at the Grand Canyon 
without the constraints of looking through the windows of your vehicle. Mm. That is what it was like between all the time I had spent inside the spacecraft looking at Earth and then on the spacewalk, which happened on my last mission, stepping outside of the spacecraft in a spacewalking suit and then looking back at the Earth. It was that different. It was like that Grand Canyon analogy or mm-hmm. pick your scenic view. Um, I had I was not prepared to see such a difference between looking at planet Earth from inside the space shuttle or the space station and looking at planet Earth on the on a spacewalk where you have only the bubble of your helmet to look through in order to see what planet Earth looked like. It was it was a big revelation, like so many other things. So you had this this feeling of just this expansive, beautiful, wonderful, amazing, awe-dropping view. And what else did you notice? What did you notice? As, I mean, it's like, was it a, a freedom feeling or was it a, I mean, what, what as you got outside of that space shuttle, what did it feel like in your body? Well, it was, um, you, when you do the training for spacewalks, you're in a, spacesuit that um, that in effect is designed to go underwater. They do the training for spacewalks in, in a big giant pool at okay. NASA. And, okay. um, and in, in that pool training, you're normally underwater in a spacesuit that's designed to be underwater for maybe six, six and a half hours sometimes. And, and they, they do their best to make you as buoyant as possible underwater mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. you can maneuver yourself um, underwater around some mock-ups that are built to resemble the space shuttle or the space station. And they give you tools that in large part can operate underwater so that you can practice your choreography for the work, the useful work you have to do while you're on your spacewalk. Right. But while you're, while you're underwater, if you're, if you're upside, if you're, if you're upright underwater, you are standing in the bottom of your boot. And if you're upside down underwater, your shoulders are pressing into the shoulders of your spacesuit. Right, because you still uh, got the gravity effect there. You still got the gravity effect. But when you actually go on a on a spacewalk, uh, what you are in effect doing is floating inside your spacesuit, and that's not something that really can be easily replicated in training at all. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have a high gravity room where you throw a switch and the gravity goes away. It, it, that just doesn't exist. We have an aircraft that can simulate gravity or a lack of gravity, I should say, for about 20 seconds at a time. But um, but we don't have the ability to train without the gravity effect. And um, and so the one thing you have to get used to pretty quick when you do a spacewalk is how to use your suit in a manner so that um, you're still efficient in your movements while you're inside floating what is in effect a, a balloon because you're in the vacuum of space and inside your suit, there's pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have oxygen to breathe. You have to have, you know, a certain amount of pressure inside the suit in order to, to exist uh, without danger. And even though the outside of the suit is at vacuum and the inside of the suit is at um, some pressure that allows the human being to, to work and live, um, you have to get used to operating the suit as a, as a quasi balloon pretty quickly on your first spacewalk. And that's a, that's a bit of adapting to technique uh, as quick as you can. And that, that is also something that, um, 
you know, an astronaut talk about and get ready for. And, um, and it's something that happens pretty quickly because you've got to get right to work. These spacewalks are normally scheduled somewhere on the order of about seven hours. Mm-hmm. Ours was a, an exceptional one for a, a pretty specific reason. But, um, but in those seven hours, they really cram in the tasks. Uh, and they have to do that. Yeah, they have to do that. So really your mind is not set so much on the experience of the spacewalk as it is, uh, oh my gosh, I've got this big Rolodex of tasks that I've got to get on because we only have about seven hours to get it all done. And uh, to me, that was sort of the overriding um, perception of what my spacewalk was all about was getting the tasks done. So what that, about when you uh, when you walk? So you get back onto the space shuttle, it's done. You know, your eight hours and 56 minutes is over. You come in. What was what was that emotion like? At, at, at your tasks are all done, right? It's like, okay, I've done, I've, I've done this. What was? I mean, was there something that that jumps out at you from that? Yeah, I thought the space walk was too short. <laughs> we just broken the record, and it didn't seem like we'd been out there long enough. I mean, it went by really fast. Yeah, and that's part of the problem is when you're when you're really busy out there, going from task to task to task, and you know, getting your tools out and installing this and moving that. I mean, it, it, the time goes by really fast. And, I bet. And afterwards, I remember thinking, oh, that was just so short. It had been almost nine hours, but it still felt like it was too short. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So when did you get the, first get this idea, this first seeds that you could be an astronaut? What was, what was it, you know, that happened? What internal desire had you saying yes to, to even applying for the program? How did it all get born, those thoughts, the ideas? Well, well, I'm going to give credit to three separate events. Um, The first event was um, happened while I was at grad school. I was at Stanford University, and and Sally Ride came to give a speech. And this would have been this would have been after her second space flight. So it was around 1984. Okay, and she was a graduate of Stanford herself. So she came back to the school and. And they had advertised that she was speaking, and, and my friend and I were there for grad school, and we wouldn't have missed it for the world. It was Sally Ride, for heaven's sake. So, so we went to listen to her talk, and I remember walking in with some sort of weird expectation of what she might have been like, and it wasn't that way at all. I remember walking out of there thinking, wow, she's just a human being like, <laughs> like I am, which... Which I'm sure is exactly what happens to people who talk to me today. So exactly, uh, she she was an inspiration in that she was so normal. And so that was event number one. Event number two was when I saw my first IMAX movie. And I don't have stock in IMAX or anything like that. But IMAX movies are made by the astronauts, uh, the ones that are filmed in space. And and they're a large format, which really suits the view that you get from the space environment. So I remember watching um, my first IMAX movie, which was The Dream is Alive. And I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. It was narrated by Walter Cronkite. And, you know, some of those astronauts that were in the movie, um, I, I, I think Sally might have been in that movie. And I also think I had met a couple of the other astronauts who had been in that movie. So, but just to see what they did and, and what it meant to work in space on the space shuttle was another revelation. So that was mm. number two. Mm-hmm. And then event number three, I had ended up 
uh, in my Air Force career getting selected to go to test pilot school for the test engineer course. Uh-huh. And, um, and a year later at graduation, there was a big banquet and we had a guest speaker. And our guest speaker for our graduation banquet from test pilot school was uh, Dick Covey, who was an astronaut that had been selected um, the same year as Sally Ride. So uh, he was an Air Force astronaut, uh, famous in not only in Air Force circles, but nationally because of his experiences as a space shuttle astronaut. And after the graduation happened, he came up to me and he said, oh, I hope we get to see you in Houston sometime. And I said, well, that must be a sign. Maybe I should apply. So uh, based on his encouragement, uh, I did apply for the next application cycle. And that graduation happened in, let me think now, that happened in December of 1987. Uh And the application cycle started in March of 1988. And I remember filling out my application and sending it in. Um, and I got picked in that cycle. Uh, couldn't believe it. And that very first cycle that you applied. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. That, that's totally awesome. And what about courage? This, I mean, so I'm just going, imagining you on the first time that you were about to launch into space. And it had to take an incredible amount of courage at that moment, right? What was that experience like? What were the emotions you were feeling? And, you know, how did you really engage your courage at a moment, you know, like that as you're about ready to launch into space the very first time? Well, I I do think that there is something to be said for really good training. Mm-hmm. Um, NASA has gold standard training, meaning that, you know, before you find yourself in that situation, they've done all they can to prepare you through training and other elements of being an astronaut. I, I just don't think they could have done a better job. And there's something about hugging the security blanket of your training that really helps forestall the jitters. I mean, we went through all of the possibilities of risk that come with human spaceflight through that process of training. And I think when the day came, um, there, I'm not aware of anybody in the program who ever had doubts about basically crawling through the hatch into the space shuttle and getting strapped in. I think a lot of that gets weeded out in the selection process. When you go through the selection process to be an astronaut, it, it became obvious to me that the selection board was probing at this point way early on. They talked to people about their feeling of taking on risk. And and I could see after the fact why they liked talking to people who were from the test community of the military, because the test community of the military has a lot of risk associated with those kinds of jobs. Um, and so NASA, NASA is keenly aware of uh, what it means to do something like this and their, their training to prepare you to get ready for something like this is at such a good level that I just simply don't recall anybody having doubts. And in fact, oftentimes when there are last minute questions about the weather or perhaps there's a glitch in some sort of the equipment that's on the space shuttle, you know, there's always a, a very disciplined process to adjudicate whether or not it's a good day to launch. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I think everybody knows is that the, the one group you don't ask about whether it's a good day to launch is 
is probably the crew because the crew's always going to be ready to go. They're like, let's and, go. And it's, right. yeah. and I remember feeling this way. I remember feeling like, let's, let's get on with this. I've trained for this mission for a year and I'm ready to execute the mission and, and let's light those candles. I mean, that's kind of the feeling I think everybody I know has ever had on yeah. launch day. Yeah. So it's really what I'm hearing here is the, the, the prepare, the preparation and the training that, that led you up to that place was, was really, you just, you were just so ready. Yeah. And, and I think the same is true for the military. You know, we talk about the military folks going over into risky situations in mm-hmm. deployments and, and it's the same thing. Our military is the, the best trained military on the planet. And, uh, and I think that, that, you know, when the training is aligned to making people really truly prepared for what they're about to do, uh, courage, the question of courage really doesn't come into it. Um, it, it's really about people who are, are ready to go do the things they're asked to do. Mm, That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. Uh, so you're retired now and what's, what's guiding your life today? What's, um, what's, how are you spending your time? What are you doing today that, um, um, is guiding where you're, you're going in the future? Well, I had mentioned early on that, um, that dedication to friends and family. And mm-hmm. I would say that at least half of my time these days is catching up on lost time in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, you really value your friends and families, but the reality of a job of being an astronaut is that you don't really have a lot of time for friends and family. And there's a lot of sacrifices you have to make in your personal time in order to get all that training in and to do the other things that comes with the job. And the same is true with the military. And so now that I'm retired, it's really a period of catching up and going around and seeing all the extended family and friends that I didn't get to see for probably onward of 30 years because of the the kind of jobs that I had. Right. So, um, so I, I vowed, as, you know, as long as that was a priority, I vowed not to take a full-time job and really make sure I spent uh, a significant amount of my time with friends and family. But that's not it. I mean, I also have a desire to remain intellectually curious and engaged. And so I do do some other things uh, along the term, along the lines of consulting and board work and uh, speeches. And in particular, you know, if there's opportunities to, to talk to young people and, and help them through inspiration, then, you know, those would be also things that would come to the top of my priority list of things I might spend my time on. I have a standing engagement, it seems, with talking to a variety of young people in a variety of situations about a variety of things, and I find those types of things very rewarding as well. Nice. And what are, what are some of the things you're speaking about these days? Uh, they could range from um, talking about what it's like to be an astronaut to mm-hmm. what it's like to be a leader in the military. Uh, lessons I've learned about about what it means to be human uh, based on my experiences with spaceflight. And sometimes, you know, people just want to hear what it's like to be an astronaut and see the movies that we can show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, so it ranges, <laughs> you know, people are very, very curious about the space experience. Oh, absolutely. I was so excited to talk to you today. I'm like, oh my gosh, I get to speak to an astronaut today. I, so I think I, I, I totally get that. 
Yeah, that the nice thing about being an astronaut is that you're really not a recognizable celebrity. So you can live your life kind of under the radar in many, many ways without being recognized day to day when you go pick up your dry cleaning or eat at a restaurant or anything like that. But until you tell them what you did and then they're like, Oh, you have to tell us more then. Right. Right. <laughs> but that's right. okay. Cause uh, you know, part of, I think the long-term um, responsibility that comes with being an astronaut is to always be willing to tell the story of what it's like. I mean, tax dollars paid for that experience. And so in my, in my sense, or in my mind, um, I owe it back to the American people to share those experiences when those opportunities arise. Awesome. 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 Well, I so appreciate today. And the final question that for today is, is what three pearls of wisdom can you leave our audience? Uh, Let's see. The first one is the statement of the obvious, which is uh, you have to believe in yourself. I mean, when it comes to the context of doing something on the scale of like being an astronaut, um, people who believe in in themselves are are probably going to be much more successful at achieving those dreams than people who experience Mm self-doubt. The the one thing about self-doubt, I would say, is that you can get past self-doubt. You can... It, it, you know, if you find a way to get your confidence and you find a way to to basically have that mental view that nobody's going to stop you from doing what you intend to do, um, that is very important. And it, it, it's a, a, a key point that those barriers just have to be removed. And you can remove them in your head if need be, uh, with a little bit of practice and work. And that's extremely important to go after the things that you really want to do with your life. Um, the second pearl of wisdom I, I like to say is, is to be the best you can be. Um, there, you know, especially for women, there's something about being extremely competent and credible that gives you some cachet that can help you achieve your objectives. Mm, I like that word. Uh, yeah, for women especially, I found that if you were credible and confident, it went a long way to forestall people's biases. Uh, and I would I would say that was a, a universal theme, whether I was talking about American work environments or Russian work environments, which was one of the opportunities I had throughout my human spaceflight experience was to work with the Russians. It's just confidence went such a long way. Uh, as a currency to really help you forestall and avoid uh, certain biases that mm-hmm. might crop up. Mm-hmm. I like that. And then, uh, and then the third pearl of wisdom, uh, you know, whether you want to be an astronaut or president of the United States or um, so many other things, it's important to have goals, but I would say that the real payoff comes not from the destination that you choose, but from the journey you take. And, and no matter what you choose to do, it's how you get there that's so much more important than where you're headed as a destination. On a day-to-day so, basis. A day-to-day basis. And what actually defines success. Mm. It, you know, it can, be, it can be the kind of person you are and the small the small things you did to contribute every single day uh, could be eminently more important than whether or not you got a certain job title. And, and so I would just leave that with people. 
yeah, what I'm basically saying is just if you don't become an astronaut, it doesn't mean you're a failure in life. It, it's not about the final destination. It's about the journey you took and, and the things you picked up along the way and the things that you dropped off along the way mm-hmm. that really matter. That's a great one to end with. Well, Susan, this has been such a delight. I really enjoy hearing your stories and you know sharing your experiences that you've had. And um, congratulations again on being inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. And thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. It was fun. Well, have a great day. Thanks. You too. I hope you liked this episode of Extraordinary Women Radio. If you did, please share this podcast with your own special tribe of women and help spread the love, the dreams, and the inspiration. Are you thinking about making the next bold move in your life? I invite you to take the Your Next Bold Move quiz at KamiGelner.com to find out how you can jumpstart a passionate and meaningful next chapter. You may also enjoy my book, Fire Dancer, Your Spiral Journey to a Life of Passion and Purpose, which is available on Amazon. In Fire Dancer, you will become intimately connected to your heart's calling and build the courage and resiliency to ignite your what's next. I'd love to hear from you on any of my social media channels. I'm on both Facebook and Twitter, and the links are available on my website. Till next time, my friend, listen to your heart, follow your dreams, and be you.